Welcome to the One Small Change podcast with me, Dr. Simon Chard. I'm a cosmetic dentist, public speaker and startup entrepreneur, but most importantly, I'm a lifelong disciple of self-improvement and optimization. In this podcast, we present conversations with world-class industry leaders, sharing their expertise in high performance, spirituality, business and health. It's my job to dissect their key behaviours, routines and mindsets so that you can implement them today to create balance and success in your life. Today's episode is brought to you by Enlightened Tooth Whitening. As a cosmetic dentist, I've used Enlightened to provide tooth whitening results for my patients since I qualified. And the reason that I always come back to Enlightened is they guarantee that B1 result that means my patients are always happy with the outcome. So if you're a dentist, I'd thoroughly recommend reaching out to Enlighten to do one of their free online training courses. And if you're a patient, have a chat with your dentist today about Enlighten Tooth Whitening or even look out for one of their regional centres of excellence. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to episode 15 of the One Small Change podcast. On today's show, we have a great friend and mentor of mine, Dr. Miguel Stanley. Miguel is the clinical director of the White Clinic in Lisbon, Portugal, which is renowned as one of the best clinics in the world. He's been there for 20 years providing advanced biological comprehensive dentistry and has an international patient base with celebrity high profile individuals such as Cristiano Ronaldo to name just one. Miguel is a, uh, a world-renowned speaker at the highest level, has an incredible ability to break down highly complex topics into a language that anyone can understand. Uh, and he's also a very passionate individual. He's passionate about excellence. He's passionate about positive change in dentistry. He's created the No Half Smiles treatment philosophy, the Slow Dentistry Movement, which I'm also a part of. He's hosted a TED Talk on dentistry and even presented the first National Geographic documentary, uh, on dentistry, which was filmed in Uganda, Korea, Portugal, and then streamed all over the world, which I'm sure we'll get onto later on. Uh, he's someone who I've looked up to professionally and personally since the start of my career and since meeting, I think probably five years ago now, back at a conference in London. Um, he's really taken me under his wing and and been a real solid sounding board as I've navigated the uh, complexities of being um, a dentist, a lecturer, a father, um, a practice leader. So um, I'm really excited about today's talk. We're going to go really, really deep. And uh, yeah, welcome, Miguel. Man, thank you. That was a brilliant introduction, Simon. And uh, let me just say, I'm, I'm really grateful that you have me on uh, your podcast. I'm really proud of what you do. Uh, I really am proud of what you do. You, you, you have a lot of verticals going on at such a young age and uh, what you've managed to do is quite impressive. And, um, you know, I, I, I will say something that a lot of people jokingly said to me, you know, you're way too good looking to be that successful. <laughs> but man, congratulations. I'm really proud of everything you've achieved and congratulations on the new baby. Um, it's, uh, it's amazing and I'm really looking forward to this chat. Thanks, mate. Well, as, as, as they always say, you, you stand on the shoulders of giants and you, you've definitely been a giant for me so far. So uh, you, you're very high profile within the industry um, for very good reason, both clinically and as I mentioned before, as a, as a lecturer. But I want to rein it back, uh, as I normally do at the start of our talks, and, and try and get to the origin of where you are now. You didn't come out 
as a child with this much, well, you may have done with this much personality and confidence, I imagine. So what was your childhood like? How did you, how do you find that shaped you as a person? I've heard you talk about the fact that I think you sailed, you sailed across the ocean with your parents when you were very, I'd love to hear about how that shaped you uh, and really get into that origin story. Well, um, so I was born in South Africa in Durban in 1973, uh, as my other three siblings. I have an uh, older brother, a younger brother, and an older sister. My mother is from Manchester in the UK. Both my grandparents, uh, uh, well, I have, half my heritage is British. Uh, so my mother is a redhead, uh, green eyes. Uh, and my, my British grandmother was from um, County Cork in Ireland. So I actually have Irish blood as well. Um, and after the Second World War, my grandfather, he went to be a bricklayer in Australia and then South Africa. My father was Portuguese, uh, was in the Navy, and they met in uh, the 60s in South Africa, got married and uh, established a family. So that's why I was uh, born in South Africa. And uh, so I don't really have a, a big connection to my childhood, let's say up till 10, because I've, I never really went back to South Africa. So I don't see the the things that I would associate with my childhood. So I had almost like um, this, I don't know, so it's, I wouldn't say forgotten child. I had an amazing childhood. I mean, I grew up uh, I with Zulus and we, we were, despite being apartheid, you know, my my best friend was my, we had caretakers and, you know, I had a nanny and, and uh, I loved her like a mom and she was a Zulu. And so I, I grew up uh, with, with, uh, with that and that's why we ended up leaving south africa because of the climate you know it was terrible um so um and you know yeah it's just it was an amazing uh, time uh, south africa was under strict sanctions so very limited access to television and all of that so i had a very outdoorsy childhood um and a very just safe and protected and uh, just very blessed. And in 1982, my father sold everything because we wanted to leave that toxic environment of apartheid. And uh, we got on a little sailing boat that was only 32 feet long with no technology on it, uh, a guitar, two, two uh, cassette tapes, one of Linda Ronstadt and one of Chris Christopherson. So I'm a big fan of country music. And uh, so my younger brother was two, uh, I was nine, my uh, two, no, he was three, sorry. I was nine. My brother was 15 and my sister was 16. My mother must have been late 30s and my father was 50. And we sailed with a sextant and maps, old school, from Durban to Cape Town to St. Helena when Napoleon Bonaparte uh, died. And it's the one of the most remote islands of the British Empire. And that's why they sent him there. And I actually spent, we spent two months on that island and I actually went to school there. Um, there's no airports, there's nothing. So it was a really interesting uh, uh, experience. I actually sat on the bed when Napoleon Bonaparte passed away and really cool. Many years later uh, in Corsica, I went to the house he was born in. So I, I doubt you'll ever meet many people that have been to the house he was born in, the house he died in. And and um, so then we sailed to Salvador in Brazil. Uh, uh, it was amazing. We spent almost a year sailing around. You would call them yachties. So people that live, at, you know, with nothing, very, very limited and just the family, you know, so singing songs and eating together and just, you know, you're in a small cramped, it's like a floating caravan, basically. 
um, no disrespect to gypsies, but it was like a gypsy lifestyle, you know. So yeah. um, it was amazing. And how did you? How did you? How did you feed yourself? Did you have enough supplies, or were you, were you lined yeah. off the boat, or? Well, uh, fishing. So yeah. you know, uh, just yeah, it was just amazing. My we thought our dad was Superman, you know, like the things that he could do. So fishing, canned foods, canned goods. I actually got scurvy. Uh, we read about it at school. Um, wow. I didn't, you know, yeah, because vitamin C deficiency, like massive. Um, and that's why I supplement a lot today. <laughs> yeah. lot today. We'll, we'll, we'll get on to vitamins yeah. I'm sure later but, on. <laughs> but, uh, me and my sister, we got it. We got boils all over our bodies. Uh, oh, wow. I actually had, yeah, I actually had some gum disease as a result of that. So when I arrived in Portugal at 10, I had a lot of decay in my mouth. Um, we just didn't know. We didn't know. And I'll tell you some insights into my parents' uh, oral situation. Many few, Not many people know about. But um, with that said, um, yeah, canned foods. And I remember like we had a refrigerator that broke down, like a small little ice. It wasn't a refrigerator. It was like an ice box. Remember, this is the early 80s. Uh, so the boat was probably built in 78 or something like that. And... Uh, all of our food that we bought in Brazil got rotten. So my brother and I would throw like one one potato, rotten potato, an hour off the aft of the boat. And we were trailed by two hammerhead sharks and a tiger shark for about a week. Oh and, then, and then the the gas, there there was a gas leak on the boat. And my mom was like, smells like gas. My dad's, no, it's not. And, you know, So our parents got into a small argument. And my dad, being a brash Portuguese Latin man, grabbed a lighter <laughs> pulled up the bilge pumps to show to prove there's no gas and we had a huge explosion which burnt all of the hair off his face and my younger my older brother jumped in with the fire extinguisher to put it out and we were trained to prepare the life uh, the life uh, raft to throw over the boat yeah but there's three hungry sharks literally trailing us um and so uh that was one of the scariest decisions of my life to actually have to you know d- uh, jump, jump in. into a life raft and that was that was that happened. I was ten years old when that happened, and um, I remember the moment quite vividly. So, of course, my brother managed to put out the fire. We we didn't. We were just about to throw it. In. It's safe. It's safe. It's safe. It's safe. And you know when you've and then plus storms and all of that stuff. And <clears throat> so when you've had experiences like that, certain things in life don't stress you. <laughs> you put things into perspective, you know. And um, so, yeah, that was my childhood. And it was an amazing, amazing experience. And when we arrived in Portugal, my parents put me in a British school here. And I remember, like, I, I'd forgotten how to write because I skipped fourth grade. Like, the fourth grade, I, I didn't do it because we spent a year on the boat. No homeschooling. Uh, <laughs> just adventures. I was Huckleberry Finn. Huckleberry Finn. And then we arrived at school, you know, I remember like trying to remember how to learn how to write because we were reading, but I just forgotten how to write. And anyway, um, so that that September will be started in September because we planned it to start school. My um, my my mother was called to school because basically they thought that I was um, had these fantasies that I was suffering from delusions because I was they said, what did you do this summer? And I told him about all of my adventures, and basically they thought I was uh, suffering from psychotic delusion. <laughs> and anyway, this is a funny point. They actually, when they found out that it was true, for the first two to three months, I had to stand up in geography class, and it was Miguel's journey. So I, my public speaking started at 10. I love it. And I mean, one, one question that immediately pops to mind on that is, 
would would you do the same thing with your kids now would you would you jump in the boat for a year do you think it shaped you really positively as a as a human being or it was just too scary for a 10 year old <laughs> i'd go better prepared and i think sailing nowadays is a little bit more dangerous because uh, there's more pirates and there's more shipping i think it's more dangerous than it was back then mm. um um but I have already discussed with my wife, you know, when our daughter's about eight or nine, we'd love to take a sabbatical and but probably do it on land. So um, but definitely, you know, do a camper van, whatever. I just feel it's a little bit safer. Not uh, I'll explain. I'm a terrible sailor. <laughs> my dad was in the Navy <laughs> for 25 years. You know, he knew what right, he was doing. Okay. I, I, I I, even despite all the tech and stuff, I I would probably um, do it on land. But yes, I think that spending time with your family uh, at that age is is very very positive. It kept us all together, and we we're very very tight. My family. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah, it's the same with me. Uh, just without the uh, the tiger shark story. <laughs> <laughs> um, so okay, so you get you get to Portugal. You're at a, a British school. You, you can't really write. Talk to me about how you went from there to getting into dental school because dental school obviously oh. requires fairly, uh, fairly yeah. decent grades and, and um, a good level so, of academia. So how did, how did that come about? So that was like fifth grade. And then I spent two years in that British school and I was always a good kid. I have a good memory. I'm just, I have a good memory. So, um, and remember, I'm speaking English in a Portuguese country and Portugal and England have a very, very, that's one of the oldest strategic alliances in the world. The oldest commercial alliance in the world is between Portugal and the UK for uh, port wine. And um, so there's a strong British community. You can get away without ever speaking Portuguese in Portugal. But my father put us in an all boys Catholic school. In, um, so when I was 13, I went to an all boys Catholic school and I finished my high school there. Uh, learned Portuguese very fast, so uh, I didn't know how to speak Portuguese very well. You'd call it bullying today, but basically I got my ass kicked for not, for not knowing how to speak the language. And um, with that said, um, I was actually quite a good student and never gave any trouble. And I wanted to be a doctor, wanted to be a heart surgeon. I remember when they did that psych psychometric testing, you know, when they come to the school and they basically said I'd be a good lawyer or it'd be a good doctor. And I was good at both things that would have led into um, that. And I, I pretty much flipped a coin. I, it's a, that's a real story. Um, so in 10th grade, I would have to sign up. So my mom gave me the check to go and pay for the inscription for 10th grade. And in 10th grade, you would have to choose to go what area you wanted to go into. I don't know if it's like in the British system, but basically I chose. So that would be like either... The, th the things that you'd become a lawyer, which would be like, I don't know, history, uh, English and whatever, whatever. And uh, or, or biology, chemistry and physics, which was to go into uh, medicine. And I flipped a coin and boom, I that was I was going to be a doctor uh, on the flip of a coin. That's a that's a true story. Um, I'll never forget that. And thanks for making me remember that. That's pretty cool. I'd forgotten that. And so then I finished high school and I wanted to go to King's College of London because I had this thing in my brain that, you know, being British, I wanted to go to British University. Uh, I was brought up on tales of the British Empire. Uh, my grandfather fought six years in the Second World War. Very proud British her heritage. 
I'm very proud of my British heritage. So I want to go to King's College, but we couldn't afford it. So it wasn't just the education my parents couldn't afford. We couldn't afford the just the, the life, you know, uh, housing, living, all of that. So I had to study close to home. And getting into med school in Portugal was really, really, really tough. And I sucked at mathematics. I was good at, I was good at chemistry. I was really good at chemistry. I was really good at biology, like straight A student. Uh, so because of the grade I had, I got into dental school. And my idea was to get the first year of dental school was ide uh, identical to that of medical. And I was going to do the first year of medical, uh, sorry, of dental and then transfer to medical because there was a possibility there. Um, and in my first year of dental school, my best friend, like my best, best friend, got a job mixing gypsum at a dental lab. And um, just to you know, to make some money and making dentures and stuff like that. And I said, I needed a job to make some extra pocket money. And I had a motorbike. Uh, so he said, well, why don't you be a delivery boy for this dental lab? So for the first year of dental school, I would wake up at six in the morning on my bike. I'd go pick up the deliveries of, and drop it off at five or six dental labs before going to school. And... Um, so that gave me a little bit of an insight into dental clinics and I met a few cool dentists and I was like, well, you know what? There's only 2,400 dentists in Portugal. Um, and I said, you know, to hell with it. I'll stick to this. And that's literally how it happened. Brilliant. I love that. Um, and then, so I've, you got out of dental school and let's, let's sort of fast forward a little bit in that. I've heard you say before you came out of dental school and you've and this is a, a, a apologies if I'm paraphrasing here, but you felt almost scared and, and lonely um, in that immediate time after um, training, scared in that you were being sort of thrown out into the world, potentially with, with not enough clinical hands on experience. And then you managed to skyrocket into one of the most famous dentists in the world, one of the most well renowned clinical dentists in the world. What's the if you could distill down that journey? What do you think has been the the core driving factor and and the secret to that success? I would just add one thing: coming from Portugal, not from New York, not from LA, yeah. and not from London, where you would expect a famous dentist to come from. Yeah, you know that's a that's that's an added handicap. You know, some Absolutely. some people in America. You know, next week I lecture for the American College of Prosthodontists. I did. I was the keynote speaker at the America at the ADA, American Dental Association, um, at their last physical meeting in San Francisco. You know, most of these people don't even know where Portugal was. You know, <laughs> um, so yeah. Um, well, it, look, Malcolm Gladwell is a very well-known writer. I, I'm sure you know who he is because you do a lot of studying yourself and you work your brain and you work your... I know how much, I know how much you put into cultivating yourself, uh, um, you know, Simon. It's, it's amazing to see how you uh, hack your own brain and your own body. And uh, I think any of the listeners right now uh, of your generation or younger than you um, that might think that your, your success is easy need to really pay attention to the protocols you put into your life, you know, the a stable marriage uh, 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 um, um, and um, I, that's a very good foundation right there. 
you know, and a very healthy lifestyle and a lot of learning, a lot of pushing yourself, uh, facing your demons, but, you know, just, just going for it. And that is that, that in itself is, 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 is impressive. So for those people that uh, choose laziness and fear, um, or have that in themselves because you are not lazy and you're not fearful because you, ha you, you are scared, but you overcome that because you, you are focused and you, you train yourself to be prepared. And those tools need to be a prerequisite to understand my answer. If you don't have those things in you, you will not understand my answer. All right. So when I graduated, I was scared. Um, I was one of the best students, uh, top, top students in my year. And nobody gave me a job because I had no doctors in the family. And then you started understanding that it was, you know, contacts and I didn't, I didn't have any. So you got a kid who got like, you know, that was one of the worst students in the class and his father owned a network of clinics and boom, he's making bank. And I'm like, damn it. I didn't, where's the meritocracy here? So my, my, it started off really early for me. And, um, I did have a little bit of, um, luck, you know, it's luck. I, I modeled during my uh my university years it was just like it's easy money i dated a girl she owned an agency um and i just started doing tv commercials and i i i, I learned a lot how to do tv commercials um i did 83 television commercials in six years so um and I, but i'd never i'd never miss class to do this do you understand i, I it was so I could have done more. I could have, I don't know. I, I never, I grew up where vanity was a, uh, a sin. Do you understand? I went to a Catholic boys school. It was beat out of you to be vain. I mean, I know your generation and a lot of people younger than you would look at this and you know, everybody, you know, they, the beauty generation. And I, I, I come from, my father was Portuguese. A man should never be vain. Now, um, I'm not saying that that's good or bad, but I always felt a bit of shame in being a model, uh, which is kind of weird. Not imposter syndrome, actual embarrassment, <laughs> because um, in my feelings, my instincts, I, I didn't really like being, I'm actually a shy person. And I know people say, oh, yeah, it's, you know, I'm not going to use the profanity on this podcast, but, um, you know, oh, Miguel, you're lying. That's impossible. Um, you know, but. Hey, work with what you're given. And that was just easy for me to be a model. Now, with that said, when I graduated, I couldn't get a job. I had to go work 400 kilometers away from um, my home. It's the only place in the Algarve, in the south of Portugal, and it, because my only asset was that I spoke English. That was the only asset I had to get a job. So I went to an international practice. And they hired me and I lived in a really terrible little apartment uh, because it was very hard to rent an apartment all year round in the Algarve because of the summer rentals. So I, for two years, I really had a tough time. And, but I learned a lot. I was young. I saved my money and the little bit of money that I saved, I invested in my post-grad education. And uh, I took that in Madrid at the Branemark Center. So I trained in the late uh, 90s uh, uh, implant dentistry and then cosmetic dentistry. And some of my mentors were uh, Bertil Freiberg, who was the right hand of uh, uh, Branemark in Gothenburg. So I was like really well classically trained. Mariano Sanz is one of the top 
periodontists in the world. These guys trained me and uh, Pepe Rabago, who is an amazing prosthodontist in, in Madrid. Uh, and I'm just very blessed to have been lucky with my education. But, you know, I, I saved my money to go and do that. Uh, and very early on in cosmetic dentistry as well. So uh, in Portugal, unlike in the UK, I didn't have to go work uh, on the NHS. It was completely private from day one. I never worked with insurance companies. I never worked with payment schemes from day one. I don't, that wasn't really a decision. It just happened that way. All right. Um, I very early understood that work, you know, having a boss other than biology wasn't for me. I wanted to do what I was classically trained to do. I wanted to do what the literature told me to do. I didn't want to say, okay, the literature says this is what you should do, but my boss or the NHS or whatever governing body is saying, this is how you have to do it. I didn't learn that at school. So because of my insecurities of not wanting to fail, I said, well, I just don't want anybody to interfere with what the latest evidence is telling me to do. It's just logic. Do you understand? And the foundation of no half smiles and slow dentistry 20 years later. Do you understand? So um, it wasn't a business plan. It was just, I, I want to be a good boy. I want to do the right thing. All right. And remember, I am broke. I'm not wealthy. I'm broke in the second poorest country in Europe. And it's the late 90s. And I'm doing the right thing. All right. And uh, if you, you know, it's a conscientious decision. If you want to accelerate your financial growth, you are going to cut corners at whose expense? Your own? Usually some poor guy who's trusting you to do the right thing in their mouth. I don't, I, again, maybe Catholic moralistic upbringing, uh, you know, to do the right thing. I, you understand? It's a, it, morality is something I had moral education once a week for 10 years. Oh, no, you know, it's it's very, very important to me to do the right thing. So with that said, um, I every week, this is not I don't talk about this often, but every night, every month, like once a month, I'd come up to Lisbon to see my friends and my family. And there was a clinic in Lisbon of an old professor that I'd been introduced to from a family friend and he had a space in his clinic. And I said, can I come and work here? Please let me come and work here. I will clean the floor. I will make the coffee. I will answer the phones. I will be your personal assistant. I will do whatever you want. Don't have to pay me just because I wanted to come back and work in the capital. No, no, no. Now, this is a guy who smokes in his clinic and <laughs> sterilizes in a UV. In Now it's like 1999, you know, so he was pretty outdated. And uh, his there was an empty room that had belonged to his brother who had passed away 14 years later that literally looked like a dental museum. And this place is in a really premium neighborhood of Lisbon that had always had the connotation of being, you know, a prestigious neighborhood. Long story short, every month, try, 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 bring a bottle of wine, be nice. I'll wash your car for you. I'll do. And at the six months before the end of 1999, he said, I'll sell you my practice. I want to retire. And I was like, oh, man, I didn't have the money. I'd spent it all of my education. And I went to my family. My brother at the time was a banker uh, in London, but not a very, you know, he was junior level, but uh, had a house that was mortgaged that, sorry, that he bought. So he mortgaged his house to as collateral for a bank loan to me. Amazing. And he, 
I love my brother very much. And look, so there's, there's some leverage. Maybe not everybody has that chance. That was my lucky break. And he said to me, he said, Miguel, uh, I'm, and he was married at the time. Uh, my brother got married very young and his wife and him had to accept to do that. Right. And it was quite a risk. And uh, it was at the time, 999, it was 350,000 euro. That's what I borrowed to set up my first clinic, uh, two dental chairs. And um, basically, um, he said two words to me, don't fail. And that was my nuclear energy for my entire career to never let him down because he'd saved us on that boat trip from the tiger head to the hammerhead sharks <laughs> and the tiger sharks. So I'm like, Hey, I'll pay you back, dude. So, yeah. uh, and that was it. And, um, you know, just being really good to people, really kind, being very insecure, uh, led me to just give great service, not having a lot of patience allowed me to just do things really well. So, uh, he, he said he had 2000 patients. He probably had 20, but those 20, <laughs> no, it's true. This is true. Right. But those 20 were like, man, this kid knows what he's doing because I was trained. You understand? They say success is where preparation meets opportunity. I was prepared. I, I was given an opportunity, but getting back to Malcolm Gladwell and the exponential success that I had, because that was my foundation. He, in his book outliers, he says, you know, why is, was Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs? And why was Bill Gates, Bill Gates? And it has, is it because they're intelligent? Is it because they're lucky? Is it because they're, you know, timing? And what he breaks down is basically, it's a combination of many, many different factors. All right. I don't think that my journey today would have been possible because things are different. I mean, there, there was nothing online back then. There was no books. I set up my clinic with, uh, with the Henry Schein Bible of products, which I'd sit down overnight going through my head every single treatment because there was no benchmarking. There was no, there was, there was nothing. It was like, it was the far West. Right. And, um, I had seen a lecture in 1998 in my university. And I, uh, it just, I thank God we had that day, um, of Ronald Goldstein. Do you know who that is? So uh, here I was at university, probably 1998, and uh, the guy comes to my school and, and I watch this, this, this meeting and it's just like, it just opened my, my brain. Uh, I'd never seen that because I you know, trained in Portugal, Portuguese uh, uh, dentists. And um, it just, I was like, wow. And I, I understood what, a, 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 an, a, a, let's say a showman is. And a big shout out to Dr. Ronald Goldstein. He's in his eighties now, still practicing. So his team, uh, Goldstein, Garber, Salama, Garber, uh, uh, so David Garber, Ronald Goldstein, and Maurice Salama, and later Henry Salama, um, back as early as 2000, became my ideal benchmark for what I wanted to be as a dentist. And everybody has to have a mentor. So, um, you know, you were very gracious in the beginning to say, I'm one of your mentors. And, you know, but, and you also use the sentence standing on the shoulders of giants. And I wouldn't be the dentist I am today if they hadn't existed. Do you understand? So, uh, 2002, 2003, 2004, early inceptions. I mean, I'm talking lectures with carousels. Okay. Like not none of this PowerPoint stuff, watching Maurice Salama deliver lectures on implant dentistry. And it's like, 
this good looking, articulate, cool, you know, they're from, they're from New York city and you know, delivering his speech. It's just like, Oh my God, I want to be like that. I want to, I want to do that. Uh, and moreover, I want the understanding of interdisciplinary dentistry. So, um, in 2002, I hired my first hygienist. Now, remember, I'm doing everything myself. I'm doing my cleanings. I'm doing my fillings, my extractions, my endo, my, my perio, my uh, surgery, my implants, my uh, just everything. Because you're trained to be a super GP, okay? And in America, Americans listening to this be like, what? Because you have this... You know, we had a very small market and probably in the UK, NHS dentists, referral systems. We don't have referral systems in Portugal. You know, we're, we're you know, one-stop shop dentistry. That's why I'm a super dentist. It's because I was, I've always been a super dentist, you know. So uh, it took me years to understand in America why, how things work. That you had the guy that did the implant wasn't the guy doing the restorative, wasn't the guy. Because universities didn't teach me that. So dentistry is very, very cultural. It's practiced differently in different parts of the world, despite supposedly having the same foundations. But I digress. So um, I had this understanding of building a team. So 2002 hired my own hygienist. And, you know, some of my friends were like, why are you giving away 50% of that money? I said, because I'm gaining 50%, 100% of that time. Do you understand? And time very very early in my career became a very valuable asset and in 2003 I, but you don't know these things you only know them in hindsight you know and in 2003 i treated a very very powerful banker um who came to me and um i remember him saying a sentence to me he, he passed away unfortunately a few years ago but he was a self-made man he was an incredible guy and he said to me miguel you work way too much to ever make money. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Because, you know, at the end of the day, I've, I look at the money and the cash and, and I was like, oh, you know, I make it, I'm, today I made this much, today I made that much. And it took me a few months, maybe even years, to really understand the magnitude of that sentence. Because if you don't have time to think, time to rest, time to process, and again, this is, 2003, 2004, there's none of this social media information, lifestyle, mindfulness. There's none of that out there, right? Mm. And so 2003, I, uh, I said, you know what? Time is something that's important. So I hired, a, I hired an endodontist. I hired, in 2002, I hired an orthodontist who's still with me today. She's been with me 18 years. You understand? It's, it's a big deal. Uh, we, started do, we started doing a, a clear aligners back in, I don't want to do promotion, uh, back in 2004, 2005, we were doing clear aligners. Do you understand? That's, that's kind of impressive. Yeah. And I was, I was, I started documenting my cases back in 2004. So here's the big jump. I had a team already around me. I was prepared. I knew how to do cosmetic dentistry, prosthodontics. Um, not many people know this, and I can prove this easily. I registered the trademark smile design in 2004 for Portugal, for Portugal. Okay. This is before I'd ever heard the term. Uh, and it was actually, we were discussing this with a, so I actually own in Portugal, the trademark smile design. Amazing. Uh, and I visited the UK in 2004 
uh, and I was in London walking around. Uh, uh, um, I had a friend in Belgravia and I was just walking around there and there was a clinic that had this machine, Bright Smile, in the, you know, uh, in-office bleaching. And I, I, my bleaching was terrible. It was, you know, with trays and all of that. And I saw this machine that popped out like a robot. And, and I, I just walked into the, into the clinic and I said, you know, what's that? So there's the no fear. I went in and I said, what's that? So for the kids listening there, no fear. And the, the woman was like, oh, this is a new American machine, bright smile, bleaches your teeth in an hour. It's like, whoa, that's amazing. Who sells it? Give me the number. And she gave, and she gave me the number. And a guy was called Adam Flint. He was a distributor of bright smile in Europe, called him up, genius guy. And, uh, I walked on the phone. I had a mobile phone. It was 2004 and I walked from, um, that area all the way down to King's Road, like to the end of King's Road. Like I was two hours on the phone with this guy and I brokered a deal to distribute Bright Smile in Portugal. I didn't know that. And I, and I found out in 2004 that Bright Smile had these bleaching centers in Soho, in America, in New York. So I'm like, what a great idea, a clinic just to do bleaching. So I set up the very first white clinic in 2004 inside a health uh what do you call it like a, a gym um do you call it like a, a club like a health club yeah um and uh because i thought well healthy people it was a tennis club there was gym there was you know spas all of that it was a high-end one so i rented a room there and i put this amazing ultra modern super cool uh clinic that had never like existed before and i called it white clinic and it was originally white for bleaching the teeth. And it was going to be just for hygiene, uh, 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 prophylaxis and bleaching, low risk dentistry. And for those dentists listening, I, I published an article called low risk dentistry versus high risk dentistry. Um, so you can Google that. But basically it was easy to maintain low running costs. So I was already being a bit of an entrepreneur then. Business tanked, it was a terrible business. <laughs> it, was basically, it was terrible. But what it did was got me a lot of press, a lot of press, because it had never been done before. And what that did is it, it put my clinic, the other side of town, on the spotlight, and I got even more clients as a result. So I ended up opening three of those spa bleaching centers uh, with the Bright Smile thing uh, early on in 2004. And towards the end of that, I, got a, uh, I was working on a TV show. And this is where it, the big jump comes. I went to the Dense Ply Serona extravaganza in Las Vegas in 2004, early 2005. And I saw an American dental event for the first time. And I was like, my mind, in Las Vegas. I mean, Dr. Phil came on stage with Bruce Springsteen, born in the USA, it's fireworks. It's it was amazing. I mean, I come from a conservative European dental thing. It was just, I'd never seen anything like this again. This is 2004, five, social media had not been invented yet, you know? So uh, at that meeting, I met Bill Dorfman, who was the, uh, you know, the creator of the Billion Dollar Smile. He's the dentist of the celebrities in America. And there was a TV show back then called Extreme Makeover. So the current people would, you know, people would think of it today as the home edition. But the very first Extreme Makeover was on humans. Later it became the swan in the UK and so on and so forth. And, but the big focus of these shows was plastic surgery. Now I wasn't a plastic surgeon. So I said, wouldn't it be cool if we had a show that the big focus would be dental 
Same concept, but the big show. Now, you're a transformative dentistry, Simon. You know the difference between being a single-tooth dentist and a full-arch dentist. So when people ask me, what kind of dentist are you? I don't say endodontist or cosmetic. I say I'm a full-arch smile dentist. I'm a, you know, so... Um, it, it, it's, and I've been one since very early on in my career. Anyway, I'm like, I want to do the show. So I flew to New York to try and get the rights of Extreme Makeover for Portugal. Again, there's very little information online because the internet's in its early inceptions. Found out that it was under license to a company uh, that I didn't really want to work with. So what did I do? I wrote the show myself. I pitched it to a local network and in 2005, they bought the show and we started filming in late 2005 with six months production. Why six month production? I wanted to do implants. I was the very first dentist in the world to do uh, full body makeover TV shows that included dental implants. Uh, we filmed seven seasons uh, since 2006 and 2012. And those shows were called later Dr. White because the clinic was white. I was Dr. White. They were seen by over five, six million people in Portugal, and that just blew up my clinic. So thanks to advice of the guy who was selling me the dental implants in Portugal, he said, Miguel, listen, you need to mitigate your TV persona with some scientific, let's get you on the lecture circuit. So in 2005, 2006, I started my international lecture circuit to kind of offset the TV thing, because I was now... A, a big consumer of very good, high-quality implants. And plus, we were filming the cases, and I was documenting the cases. So my lectures became very entertaining, and I wasn't the guy to talk about the science and this and that. I did that for about a year or two, but I didn't feel comfortable with that. So I was the guy that, you know, most speakers were talking about science, science, evidence, evidence, evidence. I'm like, okay, the guy before me did that. You know, it's like Lady Gaga. Lady, Lady Gaga, you know, people... people Lady... Between Mozart and Lady Gaga, Lady Gaga smells, sells more albums. She's pop music. But she can also play Mozart, which is the foundation of classical music. So I like, let's give people some Lady Gaga. And uh, <laughs> that, was, that was my lectures. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I think I've inspired generations of dentists to be a little bit more entertaining on stage. Again, I learned a lot from other people. I will tell you, Sasa Jovanovic really opened my eyes eight, 15, 16 years ago. Um, uh, uh, Galip Gurel, um, uh, uh, who else? Mari Steigman. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, other than the obvious Christian Coachmans and all of those guys, um, uh, I'm talking 2008, 2007s, you know, uh, before that era. Um, so before social media, those were the greats that really inspired me to, um, to change the way that I lecture. So it was a combination of all of these factors. And then, just working hard every day, you know, not people think it's glamorous. It's not, it's, I work a lot, man. I work a yeah. lot, a lot, a lot, you know? Well, that, that's, that's something that I've seen as a repeated theme throughout that story is that hard work and graft traveling four hours down to the south of the Algarve. It, th those, those sort of things I think are lost by, um, by some people is, is the, the work ethic that goes into the success you mentioned luck quite a few times there that you that you got lucky that you had a lucky situation. Do you genuinely believe in luck, or do you think that, as you mentioned before, it's it's opportunity meeting preparation? It's a great question. I think it takes a lot of hard work to be lucky. 
and let that sink in because in order to be lucky you have to put yourself in a situation where luck happens you know if you're sitting on your ass on your sofa expecting luck to just knock that ain't going to happen so luck takes preparation you know if you don't if you don't play the lottery you're not going to win you have to go out and buy the ticket and do it so you have to you have to put yourself in the zone to be lucky and you have to know how to take opportunities when they come knocking so a lot of people are too scared to fail so they don't even begin you know and dentistry teaches you to fail i mean we you went to dental school it's like you know most of the work that you do is to understand how to deal things when they go wrong how to identify illnesses and stuff you know most most of dentistry is preparing for failure planning for success but preparing for failure so i use that as a motto for life yeah everything fails at the end of the day um so it's just about how you manage that and how you bounce back i guess so um the next thing that i want to talk about you mentioned quite a lot a few times there the the hard graft element and the hard work and i know that normally outside of pandemic times you you have a ridiculous international um schedule i think i saw you write one time that you sort of done 50 countries or something insane like that um and you're on the road quite a lot how do you find balance where you're clearly such a family driven person um between that work-life balance do you think work-life balance is a thing do you think it's something that should be strived for do you think it's something that's overvalued in some ways where do you sit on that on that gradient it's a great question and to be fair i only became a father at 44 i'm 48 so a lot of people became fathers in their early 20s or 30s. Do you understand? So mm -hmm. I've only become a family man in the last three and a half years. I've been married for eight. But my wife uh, is, was and is, a, is a, a, for 10 years, 15 years, a very successful model. So she, for her, jumping on a plane, going somewhere to do a job and come back is normal for her. So um, thankfully, she understood that that was a job, you know? Um, and uh, so, you know, I only got married at 40 and, you know, that was what, uh, 2013. In 2013, I was already a very well-known and established international speaker. Mm. Um, by, you know, by late 2000, before Facebook, I'd already gone to about 20 countries, you know? And yes, it's over 50 countries. Um, <clears throat> and I've given over 220 keynote lectures. In, Japan, in 2017 alone, I did 22 countries. So, wow. yeah, it was. It, but nowadays, I try and keep it to 10, 12 max. So I'm very selective of where I do my gigs. And the reason is, is yeah, exactly. I want to be with my children. I mean, you know what it's like. It's uh, because many companies will say, what do you mean? It's, uh, you want, you know, it's like, uh, it's, uh, Dr. Stanley, we just want you to come for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, you know, and thinking that they should... Uh, you know, that it's easy for you. And I'm like, no, it's a day to get there. Even if my lecture is 20 minutes or 30 minutes or one hour, it's a day that I have to be there, a day to come back, and then a day to calibrate your sleep patterns or your circadian rhythm. And so any lecture, no matter if it's 20 minutes or eight hours, and I've done both, is a four-day event. So for all the young speakers out there, uh, just keep that in mind because you're four days not producing at top level in your clinic. And that's why the pandemic's actually been quite a blessing in, in disguise because I've been incredibly focused uh, here at the clinic and quite extraordinary results. 
Do, do you have a, a with all that travel do you have like a set protocol that you implement to try and keep your your yes. body your mind uh fresh because obviously you need to be on your best performance right and if you're jet lagged and and uh how, how do you how do you manage that from a, a self self-care point of view when i was your age um and before cameras were everywhere uh i'd go and i'd actually look forward to the after party and i'd have lots of fun and all of that so um um it was actually really exciting it was a great way to travel see the world you know um so I, in recent years five six years i'm very fortunate you know that um i i everything's very streamlined so you know from the airport pickup to the hotel, to the amount of hours I rest, you know, uh, the time that I have to prepare. Everything is very, very, very organized to the last detail of what goes on behind the lecture. So, you know, who am I meeting? When am I meeting them? Every single 30 minutes is counted for. Uh, also because the organizations want to get the most out of your presence, you know. So even, you know, the, the lecture is just half of the work. Uh, the the, the um your presence, you know, even at social events is part of the show. You know what it's like. You've done that mm -hmm. yourself. So, um, and that's actually more tiring than a lecture, you know, getting off stage and then everybody wanting to, uh, it's not, oh, look at him. It's actually a lot of work, you know, having to talk to everybody and, you know, everybody wants to. And I, I remember how I felt looking at Maurice or all these other big guys, you know, and my heart racing, wanting to speak to them. And I have to do that. I'm not saying they're fans. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not going to just walk off stage and not give them time and energy because who knows in the crowd, maybe I can inspire somebody to do something extraordinary. So for me, giving back is very, very important. So uh, I've done that with you. I've done that with a lot of people, you know, when I met you, what, 2013 or something. Mm. So it's really, really important to give back. And that does require a lot of energy. So uh, nowadays I try and keep my presence out of the country as small as possible many times once that work is done uh jumping back on the first plane back um and then trying to sleep on the plane a lot of water a lot of hydration and you know in the last year i've given up alcohol completely just because i, I can't deal I mean, with the yeah 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 i stopped completely uh even if just you know if, if i i actually did a dna test we can talk about that later i know you want to uh, find that out uh, that I, I process it badly. So I'm just like done, sugar, done. Um, so yeah, very focused on my physical health, my mental health. And you'll see there's another, a bunch of other guys out there. It's, it's just not rocket science. Your body is your temple. And if you want to be, if, if, if the work that we do requires so much mental activity, physical activity, focus, if you don't take care of the machine, man, you're going to fail. So much like a high-performance athlete, and I do treat a few, and you know that, uh, you see their regimes and you're like, okay, you know, we're high-performance athletes as well. Mm. Absolutely. So obviously, we've, we've talked a lot about having a high profile, and, and this is something that you really helped me with start of 2020, I think it was, where I was having a bit of difficulty myself with criticism, trolling. With a high profile comes a lot of... Um, a lot of uh, negativity and everyone's striving to find your um, your potential flaws i guess can you speak a bit to your experience with that and and how you've dealt with it if you if if it's just water off a duck's back for you now or if it's still something that 
affects you. Simon, we 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 live in you. You've got it harder than me. Um, several reasons. I am. I have the benefit of being a decade older, um, and it started with me very young. I mean, and um, you're a really good-looking guy. You've probably had to deal with jealousy. Uh, you know, your wife is smoking hot. You know, you're a beautiful, gorgeous couple. You dress well. You're smart. You walk into a room, head swivel. And if you've been dealing instinctively with jealousy all of your life, all right, so just deal with it. You're, you know, everybody's talking about privilege and all of that. I mean, come on, you, you can't, you can't be at fault for what your 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 family have built for you. I mean, otherwise, why do we all work? Why do our parents work so hard if it's not to give us a better life? You know, so jealousy is just part of existing. It's part of existing. Uh, it's really unfair in many times. It's just really, really unfair, you know. But let's say uh, I would go for a casting when I'm 18 years old or 19 years old for a really well-paying TV ad. And there's 2,000 people running for the, for the slot. I get it. And not my friend, my best friend who was blonde and blue-eyed, very good-looking guy, because they wanted a guy with brown hair, you know. It's that, it was that simple. Um, and I didn't freeze up on camera and so on and so forth. So everything is, a, you know, it's, it's part of the thing. So I also had to deal with jealousy in, early on. I didn't think it was so aggressive in dentistry. I really didn't, you know. I mean, it's such a small community. It's jealousy in dentistry is really toxic. Um, and it's, it's a global phenomenon. Um, I, this is how I deal with it. If you want to judge me, if you want any, I will take criticism from anybody that has my CV or up. I will learn from anybody. I will learn from anybody. And I have learned from, I'm humble enough to want to learn something every single day. And I, I have learned things from the most unexpected, from kids, from young graduate students that suggest things. I'm open to suggestion. I'm open to criticism. Negative criticism? You better have my CV and my, my hours of, of training, my technology, my clinic, my infrastructure. Then we can talk at the same level. You know, like the G7, you know, <laughs> or the G12. So I, I, that's how I protect myself from that. Do you understand? And that's why I'm not on, I'm not on Twitter. Uh, Twitter's highly toxic. I, I really think you need to eliminate toxic people from your environment. So again, Simon, look at your setup as a practitioner. Not many dentists have that. So if they want to criticize you, they better have your setup, your skills, your, your, you know, your, your thought process. And I'm not saying, you know, let them have their way of doing things um, because jealousy is just, it's just part of life. Um, you mentioned Cristiano. Cristiano Ronaldo has a great sentence, which is, your love makes me uh, strong. Your hatred makes me invincible. Something like that, you know. Uh, and e even in Portugal, the guy after his fourth golden ball, people in Portugal would still compare him to Messi. The guy had to win five gold balls, Ballon d'Or, to finally, oh yeah, okay, maybe he's the best in the world, you know? And also remember this, this is something that I think it was Mario Steigman who said once back in, because he's a really amazing speaker, a lot of fun. He said, uh, for those that don't know, he's a, one of the top periodontists in the world from Germany. Um, he, 
he said, you know, you're, you're always uh, hated closer to home. So the closer to home it is, the more intense the jealousy, which is normal. That's why probably I've never been invited to lecture by an official Portuguese dental society. Ever. That's, that's crazy. Ever. <laughs> Ever. People think that in Portugal, there's this thing that I don't get, that I refuse invitations because I'm a prima donna and it's beneath me. I have never been invited by an official Portuguese dental society. Absolutely insane. There you go. So how do you deal with it, man? Just look, do your job. Um, think of it this way. Most dentists that you know that are jealous or critical of you ain't ever going to help your bank account. So focus on your friends, your family, and your patients, period. And the companies that support you because, you know, uh, that's the only people you need to be focusing on. And uh, anybody that wants to spend time criticizing you isn't worth your time to think about them. Absolutely. I want to dive a little bit into um, something that I've seen you talking more and more about over the last, I guess, well, certainly quite heavily over the last three or four years, which is... Um, sort of the concept of, of biological dentistry, and you've probably been doing it for many years before then, but um, it's certainly come to my eyes over the last few years, especially. How do you see um, dentistry fitting into to whole body health? How do you see the role of things like vitamin D and vitamin C and, uh, and those sort of elements contributing to how you look after your patients? That's a great question. And it's my absolute passion right now. And I've found a new I just found this new energy in my profession. Uh, you know, I, I've always reinvented myself year after year, you know, and, um, you know, you're part of a lot of chat groups and all of that. And if you go around the world, the, the pinnacle of dentistry today is a full mouth restoration. You know, you see the before and the after with 12 top, 12 bottom ceramics, right? That's like, wow, with or without implants. I, I was doing that well and documented well and lecturing about it 14, 15 years ago when I created No Half Smiles. And it just, it dawned on me like there has to be more, right? So I've been an occlusion, occlu and again, everything I say, I've, there's, 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 it's been written by me and documented somewhere in the past. Yeah. So, um, but for me, Aesthetic stopped being the primary goal a few years ago, this Hollywood smile. And I, I was one of the first guys to create the Hollywood smile in Portugal in 2004, 2005. I took Hollywood, Hollywood, Hollywood. And I was like, you know what? There was a, a big boom of like breast implants and facelifts and Botox and bleaching a decade ago. And there's a whole surge of organic thinking going around the world right now and it's it's a it's a thought process that my wife and i my family we we all you know we we try and be as natural as possible and you know we, we don't plastic and chemicals and you know um we want to be as organic as possible so i thought what is that in dentistry and dentists use the term biology and what they really mean is the absence of macro inflammation Okay, so the absence of gingivitis or, you know, gum disease, but they will let chronic inflammation uh, around a root canal persist for decades in a patient of theirs because there's no symptoms. 
there's no perceived symptoms in the area, you know, and um, that to me, I, I, I just, it's, I started, you know, I, I, I spend a lot of time doing research and stuff and I lecture a lot mm-hmm. and I have to give credit where credit is, is, is due. Uh, I met a young dentist who came to me. I, I was lecturing at SciFac meeting in 2016 in the south of France and his name is Dominic Nischwitz and he's a German dentist uh, and he comes and sits next to me. Now, I, I get a lot of groupies at my lectures. You know, I'm, I'm quite an established speaker and this guy sat next to me and I was like, yeah, yeah what do you want? You know, <laughs> Anyways, and long story short, um, I, 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 he starts talking about these things and I'm like, whatever, man, that's like nuts. Everything he was talking about was nuts. What you might call biohacking today, uh, which is this trending topic online, what that would look like in dentistry. And I went down a rabbit hole and I saw this documentary, A Root Cause, which uh, I'm sure most dentists would probably have heard of. And I saw the documentary on Netflix before it got pulled. And for those that don't know, it's probably the only documentary to ever be pulled off Netflix. Uh, Because everybody just lost their minds because it suggested this guy got sick because of two infected root canals that he had removed. And something just resonated with me. Really resonated with me. And, you know, I have a big platform, so I kept my mouth shut and um, I did some research to the extent that I flew Dominic out from Germany to Portugal to, to talk with me. And he came, he was very gracious, and he spent two days with me and talking to me about the science and the, the understanding. And then I delved into the work of a guy called um, uh, Weston Price. And you can Google the name, Weston Price from 1925. He was a very wealthy, well-known dentist that went around the world to understand facial anatomy and you know why tribes around the world that had no access to modern diets had a beautiful arch and they didn't have crooked teeth and they had healthy gums. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, what are we doing in the Western world that is probably creating this? And um, I just, I felt very passionate about this. And here's the deal. There's an organization in America called the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology, IAOMT, of which I'm a member. And, um, I actually was their keynote speaker in their event in March that was held in Sarasota. I did it virtually. And I spoke about the applications of advanced technology. So you know that in my clinic, we're really probably one of the most advanced dental clinics on earth. I have an extensive track record in implant dentistry, cosmetic, oral rehabilitation, occlusion, full mouth stuff. And I want to call that mechanical dentistry. So think about it. Anything from an extraction to an implant, to a crown, to orthodontics, to veneers, that's mechanics. With or without a higher or lesser degree of cosmetics, with or without a higher degree of inflammation uh, that we can monitor. So periodontal illness is inflammation we monitor, right? But there's an English psychiatrist called Edward Bulmore. And Edward Bulmore is the head of psychiatry of Cambridge University. You can Google this. He published a book called The Inflamed Mind. It's a bestseller. And the first chapter of that book is dental blues. He goes to the dentist to have a root canal. And I don't know if they use the rubber dam or not. And you as an ambassador for the Slow Dentistry Foundation, you know that most dentists around the world will not use a rubber dam, right? And by not using a rubber dam, you are allowing saliva and all of its germs to go down 
the, I'm going to use non-specific terms for our non-dental listeners, to go down the canal and now that tooth has become toxic. It's become, it's like doing heart surgery without surgical gloves, right? So the premise is, as dentists, should we not also be focused on the health of the bone and the integrity of the bone? So the jawbone actually is a lot more complex than the femur or the, so the leg bone or the arm bone insofar that it is directly connected to the brain via the lower dental nerve. Directly. That's not an assumption. It's a huge nerve the size of a well-cooked spaghetti that if you've got the cyst that is adjacent to that nerve and any dentist right now is going to say, oh yeah, I have a client like that. We are trained to monitor it we are trained to monitor at school. Western Price, a hundred years ago, was saying to extract it. Extraction seems a bit excessive. Anybody on the NHS or at the GDC would go crazy. So I don't care about uh, what they think because I practice in Portugal, despite being licensed by the GDC and have an active practice, license to practice in the UK. So I'm not under their uh, jurisdiction, let's put it that way. Um, they would go crazy. You can't take out a tooth that's over-treatment. Um, but then, for example, for an all-on-four created by an, an implant surgeon, you will extract healthy teeth to do uh, a full arch over titanium. Do you understand what I'm saying? This, this is accepted in the canon of dentistry. So m every day around the world, and in America, there's networks of clinics that do this, they will extract healthy teeth to free the arch of any dentition, to place four implants, two at an angle, to put plastic gums. That is a fact. I'm really against that, by the way. I mean, I do cases, but I do cases where my patients show up with terminal dentition, no tooth can be salvaged, there's no bone, and then I would do that. Uh, so very case sensitive. I live, in Port I live in Lisbon, the city where it was invented. I've only ever done eight cases in 20 years. All right? Because I'm a restorer, I try and restore the bone. Anyway, I digress. So what, what biological dentistry is about is about looking at inflammation in the body. Low-grade infection, low-grade inflammation. Reducing that. And then if you combine that with functional medicine or functional dentistry, the understanding of occlusion, the understanding of you know, balance and then sleep medicine, airways. combining yeah. the, the airways and the position of the arch. So we're working with Dr. Suresh from uh, Canada, yeah. uh, creating. So you can actually build sleep apnea devices into the prosthetics if you understand full arch restorative dentistry. And that's where we use software and technology. Um, so getting back to the biological, yes, if you've got somebody, and I, I would invite everybody to go to the White Clinic's YouTube channel. So go to YouTube White Clinic and look for Advanced Biological Dentistry. Advanced Biological Dentistry. Just It's a six minute video of an English patient. Watch that video and tell me if we're not onto something that removing chronic infection and inflammation from the bone without any localized pain or any localized symptoms that your dentist would oversee or say, oh, that's stable, come back in next week. If we're not onto something that we should take a step further and stop just being mechanics and start being, uh, start focusing on the immune response and on low grade chronic inflammation from the body. And if you think about chronic illness, anything from Crohn's disease to multiple sclerosis to, uh, Alzheimer's to anything, 
the fundamental cause of that is inflammation. You know, even you want to get rid of that. So who are the only doctors that are pretty much unregulated on what they buy? So, of course, if you're buying it in Europe, most likely it's CE approved, right? But you know, as a surgeon, that you've got cheap stuff and expensive stuff. I'm also, for example, an ambassador of the Clean Implant Foundation that regulates implants under scanning microscope. A huge amount of implants on the market today have organic and inorganic impurities during the packaging after sterile. So they're sterilized, but they're dirty. Do you understand what I'm saying? People don't even understand that. And what they're doing, going to a local dentist that's offering the cheapest implant possible to be inserted into their bone marrow that with a nerve that connects directly to their brain. And if you read anything about Edward Bulmore, inflammation can lead to depression, anxiety, mental illness, all the way up to dementia. So if you start connecting the dots, you're like, hang on. Dentists need maybe a little bit more regulation on what they're putting in the jawbone. And we have to stop thinking just of mechanics and start thinking of deep immune biology and not just uh, uh, the absence of infection or inflammation and that's where i'm headed and i'm loving the journey yeah absolutely and i'm and i'm loving the passion for it as well it, as you say it's um i think there's a bit of a disconnect sometimes between who how we act and, and how we control our own lives and our diets and our supplementations and that sort of stuff but yet we still follow certain dogma that's been around for so long and i think without with the absence of any change i, I can't remember the exact quote that i heard but if you if you always do things the way they've always been done that's one of the most dangerous things that you can do because as you rightly say technology advances our knowledge advances at one time the best scientists in the world thought the world was flat so we we have to develop otherwise um we're actually you might think that we're being safer by doing nothing and doing things the way they've always been done but actually we have to change actually for the safety uh, of our patients and of our own ethics as well i guess and, and not just that, listen, I know your podcast is heard around the world, uh, but for I, I, last week I gave a lecture to King's College of London's uh, Student Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, so finally I got into King's College after all. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, and one of the questions was because I, I've been working with CBCT, which stands for Cone Beam Computerized Tomography, like a, a, a CT scan of the mouth. I've been using that technology since 2008. And since 2008, I scan 100% of my adult patients upon their first appointment. Now, UK-based dentists will hit the roof. Oh, my God! But guess what I get with that information? First of all, it's digital. And you are part of a lot of digital organizations. Um, and you know that the radiation in these low-grade, uh, um, uh, in these CBCTs, these digital CBCTs, is residual to the extent that it's compared to the same radiation you catch on a flight from Lisbon to London, right? So by taking one of the, so the information that the UK governing bodies have, I believe is outdated and needs to be upgraded because the information you get from a CBCT on the first visit means that instantly you're no longer a dentist. You are a doctor of the oral, you're a physician of the oral cavity. You, you can get to see everything, the sinuses, the bone, infections, everything on a 3D perspective. So I've been doing that on all of my patients for over for 13 years now. Do you understand the difference? And I think that we should, it, 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 I think it's bad not to do it, let alone, you know, have that discussion because it allows you to see so much more. 
And I really hope that change will come soon in that regard in the UK specifically. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, as you say, as technology advances, and I heard you speak about this before, actually, and it's a topic that I'm really passionate about. I know it's one that uh, our good friend Kyle Stanley is also very passionate about is, is how technology is going to make dentistry better for the patients, better for the clinicians. It's going to remove any distrust or any opportunity for people to be untrustworthy, I guess, by um, by bringing the, the diagnosis into into the technological sphere. And I think that synergy between artificial intelligence and well-trained ethical clinicians is going to create a much safer environment for everyone. That's a, I, I love that topic. So uh, I was a keynote speaker in 2020, my last physical uh, in, uh, meeting in Chicago uh, for the American Society of Prosthodontists. And my last slide was, what will AI do to dentistry? And I said, you know, it's going to take a time before robots take over. But what AI will know, it will know what you did wrong. It will know what you did wrong. So I believe that within a generation, there will be technology where a person can go to a scanning center and it will tell them if their dentist overtreated, misused technology. I believe blockchain will come into products. You know, I think that the, the ownership of what goes into the patient's mouth has to be the patient's decision and not the dentist's decision. Mm -hmm. Because too many patients mistake, oh, he's a high street doctor. I'm not going to say addresses. But he's, his clinic is a high street. He drives a Bentley. He does a $2,000 suit. No disrespect to who does that, please. But the money should first go back into the patient's mouth. And what's left over after tax goes to fund your lifestyle. And I think that too many doctors are taking out the money and putting in some cheap stuff into people's mouths. They're cutting corners on time. They're cutting corners on materials. And what AI is going to know is if you kept your word and kept your bond and kept your ethics. And that's something I'm very passionate about. And I just think we have a moral duty to our patients to do the right thing. I mean, seriously, you can't bank on ignorance. That's not fair. Yeah. Well, it, came, it comes back to what you said from the start, which is that that's your driving force, right? Is, is always wanting to do the right thing. Um, and I think that's super important. And I'm honestly very proud of you. Because you work in a, in a uh, you know, you work in a, the UK dentistry is a really tough environment, really tough. And I just, I'm honestly really proud of how you're conducting your career, your role at the British Academy of Cosmetic Dentistry, um, your role as a, as a, just as a leader, man. I'm, I'm really proud of it. And the quality of your dentistry is phenomenal. I know you work well within the bounds of ethics and I know you go the extra mile to plan. You truly are a slow dentist. Uh, we're very honored to have you on board, you and a few other good guys in the UK. And I'm just really, really uh, proud of, you know, you, you didn't, you never took the easy route, you know, and you're doing some exceptional dentistry, Simon. And I really, really applaud you on that. That's very kind. That's very kind. Well, we, we're coming to the end now, but I want to quickly drive a few last little value points out of you a few little um, insights into Miguel the man uh, with our rapid fire round so um, I know you, you mentioned that there was a guitar on the boat um, when you were when you were 10 and I know that you're a you're a passionate musician uh, do you have a favorite song and is there a reason behind that um, Spotify yes well favorite song depends on the mood uh, but quite frankly I today I don't have a favorite song I used to right now 
I have in my head the music that my three and a half year old is singing. So whatever she's in, <laughs> baby shark. She, no, 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 no. She, she, she's now uh, into Justin Bieber. Uh, right. Yeah, she's Justin Bieber. So I'm now a Justin Bieber fan. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, what are you most grateful for right now? Being able to talk to you, being able to go home, being safe, uh, just being able to be afforded the opportunity to help other people, um, being healthy. Um, the world is going through a lot of chaos right now, uh, Simon. You know, media is, we're going through a pandemic. There's a lot of political unrest everywhere, social unrest everywhere. Uh, but if you turn off your television and you turn off your social media, I'm not saying turn it off, just like stay away from it for a while and just go for a walk and look at a tree and a bee. And the bees are out and about now and just go back to basics. Um, it's a beautiful planet we're living on. A hundred years ago, life expectancy was half of what it is today. It's a good. We're lucky to be alive. I'm very grateful to be alive. Yeah, I love that positivity. I think it's so easy to, if you let all those information streams come at you every single day, uh, it's very easy to be taken away by the negativity. But I completely agree. It's it's a great time to be alive and and very grateful to be uh, safe and healthy. What what do most people get wrong about you? That I'm arrogant. Yeah, that I'm arrogant. Um, I'm not arrogant. I'm just a fast thinker. I'm very intuitive and I don't have time for people that have the wrong intent when engaging with me. And by wrong intent, uh, it might be right for them, but it's wrong for me. So, um, you know, I only have time for people that are good people, that are polite. Anybody listening to this, if you want to ask me a question on social media and I don't know you, my Instagram is open, but message requests are not. I receive over a hundred message requests a day. Some of them are from bots. I filter through some of them. I don't catch them all. But if you're going to ask me a question, introduce yourself and be polite. Don't. Why are you doing that? That's a Twitter discussion. I'm not on Twitter and I'm 48 years old. I'm a father of two. I deserve a little bit of respect if you're going to engage with me. It's not arrogance. It's called politeness. Yeah, my dad always taught me manners maketh man. That's one of his, uh, his favorite quotes. And it's, it's so, so important. I think manners are so underrated nowadays and that... They cost nothing, but they're so, so valuable. Not just that. It's like, please have a little bit of empathy into perhaps, you know, maybe you've got three hours free in your day between classes or between whatever you're doing and you want to write me a message this long, but that's going to take me 20 minutes to read, some time to process and probably 30 minutes to reply. I don't have that time. Because I'm he I'm healing people in my practice or I'm with my children or I'm writing my books or I'm writing my articles or I'm lecturing. Do you understand? So it's not that I'm I, I'm not I'm disrespecting you. I just I'm a human being. I don't have the time. So it's not arrogance. It's it's just do you understand? It's I'm Absolutely. not an arrogant person. But but also you care about your response and you if you're going to respond yeah. then you want to deliver a response that actually is well thought through and um actually provides value for that individual you can't do that for everyone 
And in some ways, you're better off if you're if you're just going to put a half ass. Ignore it. Just yeah, ignore it. If you're going to put a half ass response back, which many people would do, just to do the volumes, then yeah. it's 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 a negative for both individuals. You know, even on even on my social media, I mean, I I just put the heart or the like button. I I don't say I don't write thank you to everybody. And like for example, uh, my my you know, I'm again, I'm 48. I've traveled the world. I've got friends everywhere. I love them all. But on my birthday. Between Instagram, Facebook, uh, uh, SMS, WhatsApp, you know, you probably get, which is wonderful. I get like 400 or 500 messages from all from around the world, even people I don't know. It's impossible to answer them all within 24 hours and enjoy my birthday. (laughs) Do you understand what I'm saying? So I'm sorry if I appear to be rude. I'm just trying to enjoy my journey. And, um, you know, when I can, like you said, I always give my 100%. You know that, you know, and I'm very generous with my time. I'm very generous with my skills. I like to help people. I like to mentor people. Hashtag be part of a bigger game. You know what I'm saying? So absolutely. I, I, I always try my best, man. And last question of the rapid fire round. What's your favorite quote? Again, it's, uh, I would say, 2010 it was no obstacles only objectives but nowadays my favorite quote i don't i don't know it's um i've always had that one it, it changes man it it, it it changes with with the day um right now i'm just gonna say be happy <laughs> <laughs> don't worry be happy <laughs> but about marley <laughs> oh ringo star peace peace and love you know um yeah, just sometimes sometimes the most basic ones are 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 the best, you know. There's there's some that I love like for example, don't wait for your swim you, don't wait for your ship to come in, swim out to greet it. You know, there's a there's a lot of great ones out there, but yeah. I think everybody everybody's got to find their own and again, it changes. Don't be scared to change. Don't be so sticked. You know, I looked at Iggy Pop Okay, Iggy Pop the other day. I, everybody who doesn't know who he is, he's a very famous punk rocker from the 70s. Um, and he hasn't changed his look in the last 40 years. You know, he's got this long hair. He's like 80 years old. <laughs> First of all, respect to Iggy Pop. And he was giving an interview the other day. And, you know, he's no longer, he's, he goes to bed early. He sips his tea. And I'm just like, how difficult must it be to stick to that identity for 40 years? Don't be scared to change. Don't be scared to change. You know, if you, hey, I want to be something different. Don't be scared to do that. Uh, uh, if you have an identity, don't be scared to break it. You know, some of the best pop stars in the world change their identity every 10 years. Don't be scared to change that. Absolutely. I, I, I love that philosophy. And it's something that I'm really embracing at the moment is that we're also keen to label ourselves as, for example, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a dentist. That's all I am. And that's all I'll ever be. Um, whereas there's, life has so much opportunity that we uh, that we can grasp. And why can't you be, for example, you said that you flipped a coin and you ended up being a dentist instead of a lawyer. There's nothing to stop you being a lawyer in the future if you ever wanted to be. <laughs> only only uh, 48. Only 48. <laughs> exactly. Got, got time to do everything. But much like you, I'm loving being a dad. It's the greatest uh, job in the world. I, I'm, it's such an incredible blessing every day just to see those kids grow. And, yeah, you know, yeah. It's, the, it's so. the hardest and best thing that I've ever done, certainly. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I have to say, I follow your Instagram, uh, Dr. Simon Chard, <laughs> and um, 
I'm a big fan of your cooking, man. I, I want to have breakfast. I just want to have breakfast at your house one day. <laughs> All right. It's the, uh, it's the Burford brown eggs. I'll, I'll send you some I, over. <laughs> I'm like, man, you got, you know, it's like, you, honestly, I, I, I can understand why so many people would be jealous of you because you're hard to keep up with, man. You have, it's, I'm impressed. I'm in awe. Uh, you're the real deal. Um, I see how, you know, it's, I'm, I got a mad respect for you, Simon. And, oh, it's very kind. you know, it's not just that, uh, um, you're consistent in your growth. You know, a lot of people have ideas and they do it. Maybe they do it for six months or a year. You, I've, I have a lot of time and respect for you. And I think the future holds amazing things for you. And I, you're a, a, a pillar of society and I, I respect you a lot. And I will always have time for you, my friend. Oh, that's very kind. Yeah. Well, consistency is everything. I think without consistency, we're all destined to, to fail in all of our endeavors. Well, Miguel, I'm so grateful for all of the time. I've got one last question for you before we wrap up, uh, which is the question that we asked to all of our guests on the show. What's the one small change that you have made in your life that you wish you'd made earlier? Stop drinking. Wow. Really? It's been that powerful yeah. for you. Yeah. Without a doubt. And, you know, I, I never drank during the week, except if I was out of the country or on holidays because of work. Right. But um, I'm not saying never like, you know, but in the last 10 years. No. So, you know, weekends. I live in Portugal. We have wine, wine, wine. And already six years ago, I stopped drinking uh, spirits. So like, but wine is so good. Right. And uh, I did this DNA test uh, only a few like a year ago. And I found out that actually my liver doesn't process alcohol that well. It's a genetic thing, you know, that methylation or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was always quite a lightweight. Like I'd have two glasses and I'd be, you know. <laughs> uh, so um, I, I just, yeah, I quit completely. I lost six kilos after four months because of the sugar. Wow. You know, so also, by, by the way, it goes that DNA test proved that I process sugar badly. It goes hand in hand. So cutting alcohol and sugar uh, uh, from my diet, just my brain power, just the clarity, the waking up fresh. It was an amazing thing. And I wish I'd done it sooner. And I'm sticking to it as a lifestyle change. Brilliant. I love that. Well, thank you so much for your time, Miguel. It's been a fascinating insight into... Um, into the story and into into your driving thoughts behind your success uh, i'm looking forward to seeing you again in, in person soon hopefully you too. and you too. um yeah have a great day catch you next time thank you very much for your kind well-structured questions i do appreciate it and i hope to see you soon my friend bye-bye nice. all the best hi guys simon again here just one more thing before you guys go Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I really hope it gave you an immense amount of value. If I could ask just one thing of you all, please subscribe to the podcast. Please share it. Please write a review if you enjoyed it. Please talk to your friends about it. The bigger the podcast gets, the better the guests I can get on and the more value I can give back to you all. So that's it from me. I'll see you on the next one. And until next time, enjoy the ride.